Francine, bringing you more reviews, recaps, and rants on all your favorite K-dramas. This is Drama Buds, an anime podcast. So hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Drama Buds. So today I'm gonna do my usual Q3 recap of all the dramas that I've watched in the past three months. And uh, I have no idea how long this is gonna be because I've only watched four dramas. <laughs> I've only watched four dramas in all of July to September. And of all the dramas that were released in 2023, I've watched 12 of them. In this year, I've only watched 19 and my all-time total is 135 dramas. Uh, the numbers don't sound good for me. But you know what? I'm very optimistic about the second half of the year. I'm very excited for what's coming. But for now, let's have my quick thoughts on everything I've watched in the past three months. So going back to the dramas that I already reviewed on the podcast, I watched Something in the Rain in June. So technically it doesn't add to the Q3 total, but I reviewed it several weeks later and I rewatched One Spring Night and finally made a review on it. And as you know, I am struggling to watch any completed dramas. So that's why I started the whole watch challenge. There's an episode about that. So yeah, if you have any recommendations, I just keep listing them down. I'll get to it eventually. And yeah, most of the dramas I'll discuss today were released this year. So let's start with DP2, which is a very rare case where season 2 is actually just season 1 part 2. Not officially, but they did name it episode 7 to 12 and not DP2 episodes 1 to 6. Like If you look at the title cards within the show. So I think it's helpful to watch it like that so you're not surprised by the you know, sudden character developments that, you know, seemingly they came out of nowhere if you're viewing it as, you know, season two alone. But if you're viewing it as a continuation of their character arcs from season one, that makes more sense. The pros and cons of that, I would say it's great for Anjun Ho, for Jung Hae-in's character, because he really embodied the theme of the show. He completed that arc. You know, he's not anymore a bystander to abuse. You know, he, he spoke up and he did what he could to make sure that people do something about the abuse in the military. So great for him because he has really a complete character arc from season 1 to 2. But it's not great for the new characters who I think couldn't be fleshed out as much. Like Soon, Kim Jae-yoon's character, she jumped from you know one side to the other. And although, of course, you could infer you know why she was never really loyal to Gu Chao-woon in the first place and why she went against him so easily when she was initially just shown as his lackey, as his spokesperson, you never saw that. You never really saw their dynamic. They were just introduced as if you were meant to know them all this time, which, no. And Gu Chao-woon, Jijini's character, was just a villain. I mean, yeah, there was, there's not much to be said about him. And as much as I loved watching Sun Suku as Im Ji Sook, he is a completely different character in season 2. Like, he did not have a continuous arc from 1 to 2. He's just totally new. He has a complete inner world. Back in season 1, he was just a fun scumbag who turned to the good side or finally did something in episode 6. And then they said, 
oh, that that was his character arc. Let's run with that. And suddenly in season two, he's so involved. He's everywhere. Uh, they say that that's a natural progression, but let's be real. <laughs> let's be real. They added a lot more Imji Soap and made him actually important. Even though in, in season one, he was kind of just there to, to mess around with him. Mm, talking about the theme of the show, the theme and message changed from just you know pointing at everything that's bad about the military and the culture of violence that's normalized within the military. And now in season two, they're demanding accountability from the higher-ups, from this institution that just turns a blind eye to everything and covers up everything that they know is happening among the soldiers. They know this is the culture. And yet, it's so normal. Everyone goes through it. And the institution and the higher-ups themselves don't care enough to step in and prevent these extreme, you know, mass shootings and bringing out grenades. They don't prevent that from happening. And someone needs to take accountability instead of saying, oh, there are just some wild, violent people out there who would do that. No, they did that because they couldn't ask for any help because no one would help them because it's supposed to be normal because this is what is acceptable in, in the military. So I think, still good message, have not lost sight of that. I'm good. I'm satisfied in that aspect. Basing it off my per-episode ratings, um, I really disliked the melodrama in episode 2. Because in season 1, that was built up from episode 1 and it culminated in the the showdown in episode 6. But in season 2, we started immediately with the melodrama from that season 1 cliffhanger. And I cringed at how melodramatic it was and how inefficient the soldiers were. And then, you know, introducing Han Hoyol with mutism kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And that was easily just thrown aside like it never happened right after he had the big emotional moment to get over it. Uh, I didn't like that. But in terms of Han Hoyol, I like that we addressed his trauma with knives, which was very briefly hinted at in season one. So I'm glad we got the full backstory for that. Episode three with Nina. So good. So heartbreaking, so well done, but in the grand scheme of the season, it was completely removed from everything that was happening. And I think it would have fit better in season one when they had a lot more of those disconnected episodes and cases just pointing at something within the military system or within that culture. Because episodes one and two were, yeah, about the cliffhanger from season one. And then episode three was just a complete jump, bringing us back to the old rhythm of of their cases. And then four was also kind of disconnected. But I think it kind of led to episodes five and six, if I'm right. I don't know. I, I kind of forgot. I enjoyed episode four and five. And I rated the finale 10 out of 10 because I loved the bittersweetness of everything. You know, the, the rage we felt at seeing Wang Jiangsu, the, the bully from, from season one, living a normal life as a college student, as if he didn't do all of that, right? And also, I felt the relief at seeing Chosok Wong alive and knowing that Junho's efforts were worth something, at least, right? If Jiangsu can go out and have a normal life, Sokpong's still alive. He's here. And he'll have the chance to live a normal life as well, instead of just dying for nothing. For that guy to live normally and happily as if he's done nothing wrong. And I felt sad for Junho, who didn't have Hoyol and what's his name? <laughs> Kim Songkyun's character anymore. At least he had that. At least he had the assurance that his efforts were worth something. 
Overall, 8.5 out of 10. I lowered my rating a little bit. I thought it would be a 9. I think it's an 8.5. Yeah, I would not put it at 9 because season 1 was a 9 to me. I don't think they're at the same level in that way. Moving on, not others. So from now on, I'm going to use this drama as my litmus test or as a litmus test on whether or not people can actually handle flawed female characters who are not in, mm, let's say, genres that force them to be that way for extreme reasons. Like if you're a a tough lawyer or a tough cop or a prosecutor or you live in a historical time where you have to be tough and you have to be cold for whatever reason. Like if you're just living a very normal life and you're not facing extreme situations where you have to fight back and be cruel and be mean or whatever and be selfish for, for reasons that are justifiable for survival or because of trauma. You know, if you're just a normal person living a normal life, a relatively decent life, I've just noticed that people are less forgiving to actual flaws. Because it's true that we do need to see more flawed female characters, but I don't think that people actually want that. (laughs) They say they want that, but when they get it, they'll find them annoying or selfish or immature, right? You have to ask yourself, do you really want female characters who can be immature and selfish and don't always communicate everything perfectly, but are ultimately not bad people? Like, can you actually stand by the opinion that no, they're not bad people and accept that they're not treated like bad people by the narrative. I really like not others because Unmi is not punished for being the way that she is, for having a personality. And she's not forced to be a saint on earth, you know, and and turned into a saint on earth through character development by throwing so many things at her and beating her down until she is forced to be a kind angel, pure soul, so understanding, so self-sacrificing, all of that. Also, an added layer on that, I love how this drama really challenges like the mile-high expectations we have on mothers and how they're expected to sacrifice everything and lose their personalities and desires for the sake of their children. And this drama says no. Unmi's gonna have a personality. She's gonna be fun. She's gonna treat herself like a free woman because she is. And it's not gonna vilify or punish her for that. And I don't think that's a bad thing. As I said in my currently watching episode from last month, I found this drama so refreshing because it treated the mother and the daughter as adults who acted like adults and treated each other like friends. The whole show is about choosing your family and how blood doesn't automatically make you family. And I don't know, my, my thoughts since yeah my currently watching episode, they haven't really changed. So listen to that. I've, I've basically said everything I want to say there. I like the ending where the mother and the daughter were both backpacking but were going their separate ways. Uh, I really loved how Unmi, the mom, she realized that she had to let her daughter go, right? That the next step to treating her like an adult and a friend is being able to let her go and letting her live her life. And also, Unmi can do that. Mm, it's not a perfect show. There are definitely a lot of things to criticize The neighborhood murder revenge plot wasn't very well done and didn't really lead to much. When the murder guy finally got to Unmi and finally hurt her, you know, that didn't magically turn her into a saint who's like so grateful for her life and for the second chance that she's been given despite all the danger and she just wants to atone for everything she's done. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I think... I think I'm just I'm a little bit annoyed at the tone that people take when talking about the show. Because I feel like they were expecting some magical character development, right? A lot of people were waiting for that. That, oh, she'll finally stop being immature and selfish and only thinking about herself. And I don't know. I, I wasn't expecting that to happen at all. And so 
I agree that the murder subplot was unnecessary, like in general. But to say that it's unnecessary because it didn't lead to her becoming finally a saint on earth, a responsible, kind, calm mother as she should be. I think that is the tone that annoys me the most. But yeah, as I'm saying, the big catalyst for her change was not going to happen because this drama wasn't treating her as a bad person for her personality. And once again, I don't think that is a flaw on the drama's part. I don't think that's such a bad thing. I have nothing to say about Jinhee and Jaewon because uh, I like them. And I didn't mind the slow burn. I didn't mind the very few couple moments that we got at the end. Like, guys, I enjoy barely getting what I want. Okay? <laughs> I enjoy barely having it. I'd rather have just so little of it that's precious to me instead of getting sick of them by the end. Anyway, Not Others is a drama for the girlies with codependent mommy issues who love each other too much. <laughs> That's the target audience of this drama and well, 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 <laughs> 8.5 out of 10. At some point, this was like my highest ranked drama of the year. Speaking of mommy issues, let's move on to Mask Girl because it's also kind of there. Now, Mask Girl, I think, is an example of the storytelling being better than the story itself. I guess my thoughts since my currently watching episode are the same, which is that I don't have a lot of thoughts. It looks good. It's very artfully done. I like how it focused on different characters in each episode. It used the unreliable narrator really well and you know the camera and the framing only focusing on who the central character cares about it adds to that, to the unreliable narrator where if they're not important to the, the character whose POV we're exploring, they're not even focused on. They're not even in frame. We don't even see their face. I love that. What makes it really different is that it's not the typical, you know, protagonist getting her revenge kind of storyline. It's actually barely about the protagonist, Kimomi, and more about Mask Girl. The idea, the story of Mask Girl and how different people, you know, see her and view her and have stories about her. And we only see bits and pieces of that entire story. First episode was 10 out of 10, but it slowly got more boring. I'm still glad that I stuck to it because I did appreciate the themes on lookism in Korea, right? A very beauty-focused culture, as we can clearly see in the entertainment industries that we're invested in. Yeah, obviously. Uh, I liked the nature versus nurture discussion, right? That even if it was the nature of Momi and Mimo to be ugly in Korea standards, Momi wanted to raise her daughter so that she would never feel ugly. She would never want her daughter to hear those words from her. But that opportunity wasn't given to her. And I also really like how this was not actually a revenge story, right? Because Momi didn't want revenge. She just wanted to be able to pursue her dream in any way. And she wanted to raise her daughter with love. Yeah, with not feeling ugly because she was never going to hear that from her mother. Um, but revenge robbed her of that opportunity. So in rating this, the actual average of my per-episode ratings was 8. But I lowered it to 7 out of 10 because I couldn't watch it continuously and I didn't feel the need to. Even if I'm sure this is a very good binge show, I didn't feel the need. So I think I should lower that rating just a little bit. And lastly, I watched Moving and I'm gonna do a full review episode. Like, I have to. I have to give it that because this is finally... Finally! A 10 out of 10 drama this year! Finally! My god! 
It's joining the ranks of hospital playlist missing My Mister, Dear My Friends, and My Liberation Notes. Imagine that. What a lineup. Without even scratching the surface of what I want to say, uh, moving really pushed the limits of what a superhero K-drama could be, right? It was so deeply rooted in love and family and fighting for the people who matter to you, not just you know, lofty ideals like heroism and nationalism and honor and doing the right thing for the right reasons, for the good of the people, because only you have the capability of saving all those lives, yada yada yada. Yes, it's a Disney production, but thankfully, those themes didn't make their way into this. It never lost sight of who the real bad guys were. And I was just uh, floored at their ability to humanize characters that easily would have been the stereotypical baddies in any other drama. It's, it's just a 10 out of 10. Give me some time to write a good, detailed review for this one. So quickly talking about the dramas that I decided to drop. Revenant, I already talked about this in my first impressions episode. Since then, I already dropped that. See you in my 19th life. Ooh. In my first impressions episode, I said that I would finish this because I thought, I can't imagine it becoming bad. Well, well, well. In one episode, it became bad. Episode 7 really nosedived in quality and investment for me. And I realized in episode 9 that I was just waiting for spoilers on Twitter to find out what would happen. And I didn't want to actually put the episode on and watch it myself. So yeah, that's a drop for me. Very disappointing. Maybe I'll read the webtoon. I'm very curious. Because everyone says it's a really, really good webtoon. Now, King the Land, I dropped in 11 episodes. Here's what you're not gonna hear from me, okay? You are not going to hear me attack it for being exactly as what was advertised, right? I applaud how it really committed to being a rom-com with no conflict whatsoever. <laughs> no conflict at all. They can be blown away by the wind. It's, it's that easy, breezy, straightforward. I commend that. And you know what? At some point this year, I asked for that. I said I wanted a rom-com with no conflict and no murder. And you know what? This is that. But sometimes when you get what you asked for, you realize you didn't want it in the first place. And that's what this is. So I'm not going to attack it for being what it is. It delivered what it wanted to deliver. But that was not for me. And that's fine. And lastly, I dropped A Time Called You after three episodes. Oh, I wanted to like this, guys. I really, really did. FYI, I haven't watched the original. So I'm not coming in with any comparisons to that or expectations from that. But you know what's weird though? I have no idea why I came into this with first love Hatsukoi expectations. I don't know why I came into this thinking it's gonna be that like artsy and, and melodramatic and whatever. But then it was not. And the directing was very, I don't know, it was very standard TVN Saturday Sunday drama. I don't know, it looked exactly like See You in My 19th Life to me. It's not bad, right? But it's just, well, fine. And in some aspects, it was kind of bad. It's kind of very, you know, Tight shot here, tight shot there. Zoom out, tight shot here again. Uh, I can't explain it. I just didn't like it. Very disappointed at the My Country, The New Age PD here. And the writing though, the writing bugged me because it was so straightforward. You know what I mean? It was just saying everything out there. And like, 
I want to dig for some nuance, you know? I want to dig for some meaning here. I want to figure some things out for myself. But you're saying everything that you're thinking and feeling, then... Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, for example, that scene when Junhee was crying at the dining table and she was seeing Yeonjun beside her and saying like, if you were just gonna leave me, why did you come into my life in the first place? Crying, 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 sobbing, sobbing. And that entire scene, I was cringing. I was cringing while watching it because I didn't develop enough emotional attachment I guess to be able to watch her like wailing like that and also feel her pain and understand that this is like a really painful emotional experience for her and instead I was just cringing because I was reading the subtitles and I was watching her say it but I didn't feel it Ugh. I think I got halfway through episode 4 which you know usually I give dramas 4 episodes to convince me to stay but I couldn't do it I couldn't do it anymore if I watched one more scene where they were just laying everything out there, I uh, I think my head was going to explode. So, yep, tuned out. I have no full opinion on that. Maybe I'll watch the original. We'll see. I don't know. And I'm currently watching, not a lot actually, uh, I'm currently watching Salon de Nabi. I started this for my watch challenge and now I'm on episode 7. Uh, super charming, very very scattered storytelling. Usually, I like it when it's super focused. But in this case, I knew what I was walking into. It's been a while since I had like an easy breezy slice of life, you know, workplace slice of life, focusing on their individual lives and their relationships with each other. Very charming. Uh, I'll save most of my thoughts for my first impressions episode that's coming sometime next month. And I'm also watching Arthur Chronicles Season 2, uh, The Sword of Aramun. Currently on episode 3, and I'm going to make a first impressions episode on the first 6 episodes. Now, episode 1 was kind of a letdown. But episode 2 brought my faith back in the writers and, you know, the character arcs that I now saw they were continuing from S1. Because I was afraid in the first episode that, oh no, it's just going to be a simple power struggles drama. They're just going to fight each other and scheme. And I wanted, uh, what about Tagon and his desire to be loved, his desire to be a king and to be accepted by the people because he's always felt like an outcast because he's an egotu. You know, what about him and Dayalha? And, you know, didn't they love each other? Weren't they so passionate about being together? They fought so many people. They fought back so hard to be able to be together. And Saya, you know, not being recognized by anyone. By Tagon, who isn't really his father. By Teilha, who actively is suspicious of him. By Tanya, who only sees him as Unsom's twin. Like, the inferiority that this guy's feeling. Where is that? I want to see more of that. And episode 2 kind of brought that back. Episode 1 was like that because they needed to establish where everyone was and what they looked like because there were so many recasts. Uh, and what they've been doing in the past 10 years. But episode 2, okay, we brought back some of that character writing that I was looking for. So, kind of hopeful for it. More thoughts in the First Impressions episode next week. So hopefully, quickly, I'm going to go through all the other media, the non-K-drama media that I've watched. First up, we have The Bear on Disney Plus or Hulu. And uh, season one of The Bear is top-tier stress television. 
Do you ever just want to watch something stressful because it's their stress, not yours, not your real-life stress that you have to deal with on your own? Yeah, that's what I felt about season one. It's just a lot of yelling and people being so resistant to change and uncovering, you know, bits and pieces of a dysfunctional family, both like the literal family and the family of these, these cooks in this restaurant. And then season two is all about tearing that down and, and starting anew. And oh, if season one was stress television, season two gets into the characters. And oh, you know how I love it when we get into the characters and you make me care about, you know, these cooks and these side characters who are now given an entire episode to just be a real living human being. Oh, Marcos' episode was so, so peaceful in a show where you expect that something will go wrong. Like that feeling of, you know, when is the other shoe going to drop? But no, it's just one episode of peace because that's what he deserves. He's a pretty good guy. He deserves to have a peaceful moment to himself outside of the stress of this new restaurant that they're trying to build. And oh, Richie. Richie is my new Roy Kent, you know? You can't go wrong with a grumpy character who's secretly just deeply lonely and sad. <laughs> like You just can't go wrong with a character like that for me. And I love everyone. I love everyone except for Claire. Uh, I hate Claire with a passion because I know she is not an accident. I know that they did not accidentally write the most boring character who only exists in relation to Carmi as his dream girl, whatever. I know that she is intentionally like that. And yet I don't understand why. Like, why would you put us through this? Us, the viewers, through this character who has absolutely nothing going on for her in a cast of characters who are all so layered and whose, whose little struggles and big struggles are treated with the same amount of respect for how much it matters to them. And then we have Claire, who has nothing going on and has no problems and is okay with everything. And I don't know, just she's an idea. She's not a character. She's not a person the way everyone else is a person. And that's why she's so frustrating. And I hope they don't keep her on for season three. But if they do, oh God, they have a lot of work to do. But yeah, The Bear, great television. I had a great time watching both seasons so quickly. I think I finished it in barely a week. Moving on to movies. I watched Barbie and then Oppenheimer and Barbie on the same day. And okay, Oppenheimer, not a lot of thoughts. Honestly, guys, it's my first Nolan. So <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not a film girly. I've admitted this. I don't feel qualified enough to say anything about that. I mean, I have to admire the fact that it was a three-hour movie of mostly just people talking. And I was engaged. Barbie, though. As someone who has watched twice, and I feel like I'm a little bit more qualified to say something because I have watched another Greta Gerwig movie. I've at least watched Lady Bird. And I cried for like 30 minutes after it, okay? Haven't watched Little Women yet, but... At least I'm slightly familiar with her. Anyway, I was disappointed by Barbie. Yeah, I was. I mean, production obviously looks fantastic. Music, all of that. Okay, let's dissect this on like theme, character, plot. So theme-wise, of course I like all the themes. I agree with all the themes. I won't really knock it for being Feminism 101. Because, well, you know, it's Barbie's introduction to the world outside of the perfect matriarchy in Barbie land. And... Honest to God, a lot of people need Feminism 101. Like, I've seen all this stuff in Tumblr circa 2014, but other people have not. So that's fine. I won't knock it for that. Then Ken's whole shtick about, yeah, discovering the patriarchy in the real world and trying to make an imitation of it in Barbie land. And the thought that 
any society with one gender that's more powerful than the other and treats the other gender as if they're, you know, second-class citizens. Of course, whether that's a patriarchy, whether that's a matriarchy, if it leaves, you know, the second gender, quote-unquote, feeling like they are less of a person because of that, it's not good. Yeah. And then that's what Ken was going through. That he wasn't his own person without the validation from Barbie. And that's often how women feel in the real world. They're not seen as real people without the validation of men. Okay, valid points, valid points. Great. And it kind of discussed the initial intentions of Barbie. You know, why it was introduced to people, why it was introduced to little girls out there telling them to dream. And now in modern society, it's been warped into, oh, Barbie is a representative of impossible standards. When that wasn't the intention for, for the doll. And it's unfortunate that she's been misconstrued all these decades later. Uh, okay, all great. That's all great. My problem is that although the themes are good and all, I am confused if Barbie, the protagonist, refers to Barbie as in stereotypical Barbie played by Margot Robbie, who is the character we've been following this entire time, or if it's, you know, Barbie as a collective, Barbie as an entity. Because stereotypical Barbie has been driving this plot forward almost forcing it forward. Honestly, the flow of the plot seems very step A to step B to step C to step D. It didn't really flow naturally where it felt like it was directed by the character we should be following and instead it was just directed forward because the plot has to keep moving. You know what I mean? It's not character-driven. It's just driven. <laughs> it's just going, going, going. And okay, my main, main, main gripe is that the climax of the movie, which arguably is the musical number, Ken's musical number, it's about Ken. The climax, the plot climax of the movie is about Ken. And even after that, it's about him being overthrown and then Barbie having to comfort him. And then right after that, the supposed emotional climax is Barbie walking with the creator and, and you know, seeing what it is like to be a woman in the real world and all the highs and lows of it and choosing to become a real woman because she doesn't feel like she has a place anymore in Barbie land. Great message. I wish I saw more of that journey throughout the entire film, especially in the past 20 minutes leading up to that. Because yeah, in the past 20 minutes of the whole heist of the Barbies taking back Barbie land, stereotypical Barbie was just in the background. Like it was not about her, which I understand it. But I just felt like stereotypical Barbie was left behind. I mean, we can all admit that Ken stole the show for the last 30 minutes of it. And then we go straight into an emotional climax with a character who we've barely really spent time with and wasn't even the driving force of the whole thing. So yeah, that's why I'm starting to think, is the protagonist of this movie Barbie as in stereotypical Barbie or just Barbie as an entity? Because I did not feel the, the connection that led me to believe that, oh, that's why she would choose to be in the real world instead of staying as a Barbie. <sighs> I don't know if I'm explaining that well. The humor to me wasn't funny. Gloria and Sasha were not very well integrated, honestly. I mean, would I love a longer movie on a mother kind of navigating her child growing up and drifting from her from the perspective of the mother because Ladybird was giving the perspective of the daughter? Yeah, I'd love to see that. But that's not what this movie is. And I think that would have added more heart. And the scene with, with Barbie in the bus stop with that lady, just, just this much heart. I'm just looking for a little more heart in this movie. But yeah, it just felt like plot steamrolling ahead. And the character who's not driving the machine, she was just waiting for it to take her somewhere. I don't know if half of that made sense. <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, I was not enamored the way I wanted to be with this movie.
So that's it for me today. So what's in my top 10 for 2023? So far, number 10, Something in the Rain. Number 9, Dream High. Number 8, Recipe for Farewell. Number 7, Call it Love. Number 6, Dr. Cha. Number 5, The Good Bad Mother. Number 4, DP2. Number 3, Not Others. Number 2, Currently My Dearest. And number 1, Moving. Have you noticed that four of these aired in the last month or two? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to say. Things are looking up. I have faith. And so far, the things that I'm looking forward to are, of course, part two of my dearest. As of now, Twinkling Watermelon hasn't aired yet. So I'm excited for that. Hopefully, I'll like it later. Surprisingly, I'm interested in Strong Woman Kang Namsoon. Even I'm surprised. Okay, even I'm surprised that I'm interested in it. Uh, I'm also, for some reason, tuned into A Good Day to Be a Dog. I mean, it might be fun. I won't knock it. You know, my expectations are low. I'm, I'm here for a good time. And just recently, they're starting to promote Castaway Diva. So, yay! <laughs> Super excited for that. Fingers crossed. Hoping for the best. And also, Duna. The one with Suzy and Yang Sejong. The Netflix drama. So excited. I'm so excited. See? This is the energy I've been waiting for. And we'll see if I end up liking or even watching any of these. But yeah, I'm more optimistic than usual. So thank you so much for listening and I will see you soon.